What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this insightful video, I answer seven fascinating subscriber questions, primarily about dividend investing, and I think you'll find value in some of my answers, so I encourage you to listen from start to end. If you'd like me to answer a question of yours in a future video like this, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM me your questions. If you do send me a question, then tell me if there's any part of your name or question that you don't want me to show. And sometimes I'll still hide someone's name on my own, just depending on the question. Anyway, while I've been investing for over 30 years and have been able to retire early once my dividend income grew larger than my expenses, I'm not a licensed professional financial advisor, so treat what I say as entertainment only. Okay, question one, which is from Daddy Tightwad, who said, If you have 60k in a 401k that could be rolled over, would you leave it as is post-rollover, or would you sell out of the positions and then build up a single stock position to gain growth and dividends, or would you opt for a mutual fund? He then asked, If you worked for Target or Walmart and they gave you 100k of RSUs, would you keep them or sell or buy different stocks? So personally, I always loved moving out of old work 401k funds and putting that money into dividend stocks in my self-directed IRA. There are some pros to leaving your 401k as is, assuming you can, but one of my favorite things about leaving a job was knowing I got to put more capital in specific tickers that I wanted rather than be restricted to whatever my previous company let me do. What I mean is that jobs sometimes only have things like target date mutual funds that your 401k deposits can go into, and that's fine, but I've always preferred stuff other than mutual funds. Okay, on to your second question about RSUs and Walmart Target, and my answer is that it depends. First of all, RSUs are a bonus in stocks that public companies can grant to some of their employees for various reasons, and they usually vest at a percentage each year, which also means they tend to act as golden handcuffs to keep their good people from quitting. Unlike normal stock options, which are granted at a certain price, RSUs you just get as a bonus. But you usually have RSU taxes to deal with, and you don't get dividends on your RSUs until they actually vest. And you can actually get burned with RSUs, which is rare and really shouldn't happen, but I've seen it happen. Specifically, what can happen is that RSUs can vest, and even though the company can hold back on some of the RSUs to cover taxes, they usually don't know your specific tax situation, so they won't necessarily cover all the taxes. Then they vest at a certain date, and you owe taxes based on the stock price that they vested at, but then if for some reason the stock tanks before you sell out, then in theory you could actually owe more in taxes than they were even worth. It's an incredibly rare situation, but I know of someone that it happened to. Anyways, 99.9% .9 of the time RSUs are awesome, and I really like both Target and Walmart, and I'd be fine to hold either of those stickers in my dividend portfolio. I think a good way of looking at RSUs is like they're a cash bonus. So if you got a cash bonus, would you then buy Target and or Walmart with that cash? If so, then keep holding. If you wouldn't, then don't. That all being said, if it were me, I'd probably hold on to the stock, though I feel Walmart is overpriced these days. Another factor to consider is what percentage of your net worth is held in company stock. Like if you've been working at Target for years, and between stock options and RSUs and employee stock purchase plans and your own market buys, you have a percentage of your net worth at Target, not to mention it's your job. The higher the concentration of wealth you have there, the more risk you take on. Now Walmart and Target are pretty darn safe, but hey, they thought Enron and Lehman Brothers were also pretty darn safe. Okay, let's move on to question number two. The next question is from Gene, and he asked for my thoughts on bonds. So before I talk about bonds, I'll first explain something about stocks. When you own a stock, you effectively own part of a company. Like take a look at J&J. Seeking Alpha says it trades for $161 a share, and it has a market cap of around $388 billion. J&J is actually my fourth largest position in my portfolio, and I own 960 shares of it worth 156 grand, and 156,000 divided by 388 billion means I own 0.000004% of J&J. Or I could calculate my ownership percentage by dividing its market cap by its ticker price to get its number of shares outstanding, and then divide how many shares I have by how many shares it has. So 388 billion divided by 161 bucks means J&J has 2.4 billion shares outstanding. 967 of my shares divided by 2.4 billion shares outstanding is also 0.000004% of J&J that I own. 
Okay, now let's talk about bonds, which don't give you ownership rights like stocks do. No, bonds represent a loan from the buyer, who is you, to the issuer of the bond. Governments, corporations, and municipalities issue bonds when they need capital. One cool thing about municipal bonds is that they can be tax-exempt from federal and possibly state and local taxes. So some bonds have some cool aspects to them, but bonds aren't guaranteed. I mean, there's always the risk that the borrower fails to repay the loan and defaults on their obligation. There's a level of default risk based on the underlying credit quality of the issuer. Like the likelihood that the US defaults is less than the likelihood that some random company defaults, but anything is possible. And speaking of J&J, &J, it and Microsoft have the highest credit ratings out there, even higher than the US government. Crazy. Okay, so an investor who buys a government bond is effectively lending the government money, and if an investor buys a corporate bond, the investor is lending the corporation money. Like a loan, a bond pays interest periodically and repays the principal at a point in time in the future, known as maturity. Thus, bonds can give you a stream of income, and they can offset some volatility you might see from owning stocks. Generally speaking, stocks tend to have more upside opportunity coupled with greater risk, whereas bonds are usually more stable but also tend to provide lower long-term returns. For example, here's a spreadsheet I put together of the last 30 years of various asset class returns, with the highest returns listed in the first columns and the lower returns going out to the right. So like US large cap growth stocks have returned 13.43% annualized, the US stock market as a whole has returned 11.56% annualized in the last 30 years, REITs have been at 10.45%, emerging markets at 9.17% a year, European stocks at 8.78%, long-term corporate bonds have averaged 6.39%, gold has been at 6.39% per year, the total US bond market has averaged 4.38% per year, inflation has been at 2.52% per year, cash has been at 2.37%, and commodities as a whole have averaged a negative annualized return. Or to summarize, the overall US stock market has returned about 11% per year annualized in the last 30 years, whereas bonds have returned about 4.4% per year. But whereas the US stock market fluctuated from losing 37% in a bad year up to gaining 36% in a great year, all US bonds only lost 13% in their worst year versus only gaining 18% in their best. I say only because relative to stocks, they went up half as much when comparing bests. This graph I made shows you the performance of US stocks in red versus bonds in blue, and you can see how stocks have higher highs and lower lows in red versus bonds that have lower highs but also less lows. And obviously, if you look over different time frames, things can change a lot, and all that data is looking backwards, and no one knows how various asset classes will perform moving forward. Most experts historically have recommended people hold some bonds in their portfolio, and the classic rule of thumb is to own your own age in bonds. So like a 40-year-old should hold 40% of his portfolio in bonds. I'm not a fan of that rule, and I hold 0% of my portfolio in bonds, but me being 100% in equities is considered too risky and aggressive by many. Bonds traditionally have a low correlation to stocks, so they're often seen as a more consistent way to get returns, albeit probably lower returns. That being said, in the last five months, stocks and bonds have looked a lot more correlated to me. Young investors who have a higher risk tolerance and a longer time frame in mind don't need to hold bonds in my opinion, but if they can't stomach the stock market, then bonds are worth considering. Or maybe they should just work on their stomach. By the way, there's an asset allocation strategy called a bond tent, where your bond holding percentages increase close to retirement and then decrease afterwards, kind of forming an inverted V or a tent, if you are mapping the bond holding percentages on a graph. Okay, let's move on to question number three of seven. This one comes from someone who said that if they had as much money as me, they wouldn't be pitching a Patreon and instead would be giving away everything for free. So I thought it'd be useful to help share my perspective on things. First of all, my YouTube videos are free and that's where the majority of my time on social media goes. I'm very passionate about sharing what I've learned about investing and life to everyone out there in hopes that they can build a better financial future for them and their lineage. I desperately want everyone to invest intelligently because it's been such a positive game changer for my life and I know it can be for others as well. Second of all, my dividend discord is also free and open, whereas many other YouTubers charge for access to their discords. And not only that, but my research tells me that mine is the largest free dividend-focused discord in the world, and I spend a lot of time making it a great community. 
I also freely share information on my Twitter X account and my Instagram account, along with I freely let people consume my podcasts. Now, beyond all that, I also have a Patreon account. My highest tier of Patreon subscribers I named the King Tier, and I only let a handful of people be at this tier because part of it includes a monthly private voice call with me via my Discord where we can talk about whatever the person wants. Sometimes people want to talk about a particular stock, or maybe their portfolio, or perhaps a business opportunity or taxes or whatever. Now, I'm not a professional financial advisor, but I'm happy to talk about what they want. Some of my King supporters don't use their monthly allocation of chat time with me, and pay to effectively keep me on retainer for whenever they do want to chat because they know that my King slots are hard to get. Some people are king simply as the way to show their appreciation for all the information and positive influence I'm trying to have over the internet. Okay, and then the next tier down from kings are my Patreon aristocrats. Both kings and aristocrats get access to a special private channel on my Discord where we can chat privately about things, and they get to vote on which thumbnails I use for my videos, along with they get to watch my videos before I release them publicly Saturday morning, and they get to vote on the videos I work on. I also give them special shoutouts in my videos, and their names go on my scrolling news ticker on the bottom of the screen. Those two upper tier Patreon levels also get access to spreadsheets I create, like my dividend spreadsheet product, though I sometimes give away some spreadsheets I create for free. Each person who uses my dividend spreadsheet product takes some of my time in real life to maintain, which is a key reason why I limit both my aristocrat and king seats, which is why they've been sold out for months and I don't plan to add any more. But if you're patient and you wait, you can snag one when someone drops off or when their credit card bounces or whatever. So circling back, the majority of stuff that I do is for free, and my Patreon stuff provides new perks and services that often take extra time for me to provide, so I limit membership and I charge for that extra time. Regardless, why would you feel it's a problem for someone to charge for their time or their products? Like, do you have a problem with Elon charging for his Teslas even though he's worth $200 billion? I mean, why doesn't he give them away for free? I only kind of joke when I say that. Oh, and another reason I charge for my Patreon stuff is because I'm teaching my kids how they can start an online business from scratch, so revenue and expenses and growth and yada 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 is all part of that. I actually have a variety of expenses to make my YouTube videos and my social media business, from business registration charges, to extra tax prep fees, to fees I pay to have near real-time stock data in my spreadsheet product, to fees I pay a website to use their video footage, to paying for a tool that helps me create my video thumbnails, to a security bot I pay for that helps protect my Discord, to my podcasting site I pay for, etc. So the TLDR is that probably 99% of what I do is free, and then I charge a small percentage of people who want my time or products above and beyond all the free stuff I do. Everyone on YouTube is unique and has their own story to share, and part of what makes me unique is that I've been investing for three decades and have managed to build a multi-million dollar dividend portfolio from scratch, thus I can share my insights on exactly how I've achieved things. Okay, let's move on to question four. This person said that if he bought the same stocks I had at the current prices they're at, then he would have less of each stock than I'd have, thus he would have less money in dividends due to yield on cost. But I think he's misunderstanding things, so I'll explain. Right now my portfolio is worth around 2.86 million US dollars. If anyone had that amount of money in cash to invest, then they could basically buy the same stocks I have in the same amounts and get the same amount in dividends that I do. I say basically because taxes and account types can change things, but there's nothing magical about buying stocks in the past other than I probably got them for cheaper than you're getting them for today, but that wouldn't change how much dividends you get if you buy what I have today. Now if you meant to say that my yield on cost would be better, then that would probably be true. Or if you were trying to say that I invested less in the past and that I had stock appreciation, so it would take a greater cost basis today to buy my same portfolio, then yes, that's probably true as well. But beyond that, if you bought the same number of shares of each of my tickers that I have, then we're at the same point going forward other than cost basis and such. Okay, let's move on to number five. This question is from Candy Daniel Paul who says, Please help me understand this about dividends. If the price of a stock is influenced by supply and demand, then why is the stock price reduced when a dividend is paid out? This is what discouraged me from dividends. Unless the stock price keeps going up, dividends received are not extra money, right? Also, if the price of a stock is reduced when dividends are paid out, why doesn't the stock price increase when the company makes money? 
Great questions. So yes, when a dividend is paid out, the stock's price effectively drops by the amount of the dividend. You see, before a dividend is paid out, it shows up as a liability on the balance sheet as a dividend payable. Generally speaking, to pay that liability, a company can either use their cash they have on hand or they can take on debt to pay it. After the dividend is paid, the div payable is reversed and is no longer on the liability side of the balance sheet. Dividends are not part of stockholders' equity, but the payout of cash dividends reduces the amount of stockholders' equity on a company's balance sheet because cash dividends are paid out of retained earnings. When a dividend is paid, the company's cash balance, which is a current asset, decreases by the amount of the dividend, and then it flows through the financial systems until it shows up in your brokerage. Since the amount paid out in dividends no longer belongs to the company, the worth of the company has now decreased, and that manifests as a reduction in the company's market cap, since market cap is the number of shares outstanding times share price, which is why share price gets dropped. Now your total potential returns are how much stock appreciation you have, plus any dividends you've got. When you asked me if unless their stock price keeps going up, dividends received are not extra money, well it depends on what you mean. I've told you how stock price gets pushed down when a dividend is paid out, though of course if there is a lot of demand for that stock, then it could still end up for the day. But if the stock effectively trended sideways and it was paying out dividends, then your total return would be the dividends that were getting paid out, not any real stock appreciation. In terms of why doesn't the stock price increase when the company makes more money, well that's kind of what usually happens over time. I mean like I always say, stock prices tend to follow earnings. Companies that are growing their earnings tend to have stock prices that also grow. That's why you don't want to invest in a company just because it pays a dividend, and that's also why you want to invest in companies that you think will flourish over the long run. But I think I get your point, which is why not force the stock price to go up if earnings go up, or probably more specifically, why don't they just not force the stock price to drop and instead just let the market naturally price the stock due to it having less worth, rather than force the stock price down? And I think the answer to that is to prevent dividend capture from gaming the system. For reference, dividend capture is a trading strategy that's about buying a stock before the ex-dividend date to earn the dividend, then selling it on or after the ex-dividend date. A stock should drop by the dividend amount on the ex-dividend date, which still nets the investor a profit. Traders can capture net profits if the price of the stock drops less than the dividend amount or rises above the purchase price. This doesn't always happen as there are different factors that affect share prices, including demand, but if the stock price didn't drop then the balance of the system wouldn't make sense. And that's kind of why it doesn't really matter if you buy it just before the X date or after it, because effectively you're getting the same thing. Get what I mean? Okay, on to question number six. This one is from Retire and Go, who says, I'm hearing Carnival Cruise Line is the stock to grab for the next few years of gains and tasty dividends. Also, Walgreens is doing great as a company and has a low PE ratio. Great dividend too. Thoughts? So I actually got this question a while ago, though I can't remember the exact date, but it was after the pandemic hit. I'll also mention that I'm a huge fan of cruises and I've been on a bunch of cruise lines, including Carnival, which was fun when I was young and single, but these days I prefer Royal Caribbean. I've heard celebrity cruises are good, so maybe I'll try one of those next. I think Royal Caribbean actually owns celebrity. Anyway, let's take a look at Carnival stock. So there's a big drop around the pandemic as you could have guessed. Overall, it looks like the stock has basically gone sideways for 25 years, which kind of sucks. Of course, the stock can be underpriced or overpriced for years. I do think buying after a huge drop, like what the pandemic did, is often a good way to go, so your mindset from that perspective is in the right place. Looking at their financials, it looks like they've recovered from the poor pandemic performance, though they've racked up a decent amount of debt, which they're starting to pay down. What I'd like to understand is that they have a lot of growth in front of them. I mean, sure, they can keep building more ships and expand into other areas around the world, and they can look to buy other cruise lines. Plus, I'd imagine that aging demographics in the U.S. are a nice tailwind for them. But even though I think their price looks kind of compelling, I'm not interested myself as I tend to avoid companies that pause or cut their dividend, even if it's due to a black swan event. Now, you also mentioned Walgreens, and in my last video, I talked about how Walgreens' new CEO decided to cut their dividend. A concern I've stressed repeatedly about Walgreens, beyond the potential dividend cut, which unfortunately happened, is that Amazon can keep eating into them. I mean, sure, I think there's still a place for brick-and-mortar pharmacy drugstores out there, but will they prosper to the point that it's worth investing? 
Maybe. If Walgreens can make cash with on-site doctors and other innovative offerings, maybe they'll flourish. But I'd still be worried about Amazon. These days I'm relying on Amazon for my pharmaceuticals, and I do 90% of my shopping online, whether we're talking about food or band-aids or whatever. Amazon is just too strong when it moves into new business areas. Like I saw an article that was talking about how Amazon wanted to pull new mothers into buying diapers from them rather than from their main competitor online, which was diapers.com. Amazon first tried to buy diapers.com, but when they didn't budge, Amazon started offering cheap diapers online, cheap to the point that they apparently lost $200 million in building their diaper business. And you seemingly can't win a price war against Amazon, so diapers.com started doing badly and then Amazon jumped in, bought them, and shut down the site. Then apparently they started raising price on Amazon diapers to make them profitable. So overall, I'm not interested in owning Walgreens, though I hope they turn things around and do great. Okay, let's move on to the final question. This one comes from Dung Nguyen, who says, What three ETFs could you hold forever? And he mentioned VU, SCHD, and JetQ. Then he asked, What three growth stocks would you hold for 20 to 30 years? Which three to five individual dividend stocks could you hold forever? So yes, I like VU and VTI and any of those all-market U.S. stock tickers, putting my retirement income needs aside. I'm also fine with SCHD as part of my forever holdings as someone who needs income in retirement and is okay to forego some probable stock appreciation in favor of passive dividend income. Other dividend ETFs to consider include DGRO or any of Vanguard's dividend ETFs, and there's some others. Now I'm long JetQ, though I wouldn't put it in my forever hold category yet, even though I have no intention of selling out. If it's still chugging along in a decade, then maybe I'll move it into the forever category, at least for people who need to juice their income a bit, but I'd not advocate holding a large percentage of it. In terms of three growth stocks, I assume you mean non-dividend growth stocks, so I'd put Google, Amazon, and Tesla in that bucket. In terms of individual dividend stocks I'd like to own forever, I'd say Realty Income, J&J, Microsoft, Pepsi, and McDonald's if I had to limit it to five. If not, I'd also add things like Coke, Apple, Procter & Gamble, Caterpillar, Home Depot, Starbucks, and I could go on. You know, it's funny. I was talking to someone the other day who was going on and on about how awesome it would be to win the Starbucks a day for life game, or how amazing it would be to own a McDonald's gold card like Buffett and Gates have that lets you eat at McDonald's once a day for life. I looked it up and the McDonald's gold card is two free meals a week for 50 years or life, whichever comes first. But while people think that's incredible, the reality is that you could literally create that for yourself with a bit of work. I mean, you could realistically make $10 a day in dividends if you invested for multiple years. Let's say you had a portfolio at a 4% average weighted yield, so $10 a day is $3,650 a year in dividends, which means you'd need a portfolio worth about 90 grand. My point is that while yes, anything free is awesome, it is still incredibly awesome to build your own passive income stream, one that will probably last for your life and beyond. And in fact, as I work on this section of the video, I just got notified that I got a big dividend from Altria for $3,723 and another one from PM for $863 and then in a couple days Realty Income will pay me $915. I plan to reinvest $200 of that O income and buy more Realty Income shares. But unlike Realty Income, I wouldn't recommend investing in tobacco stocks unless you're very comfortable with the risks. And sure, I think those companies will keep pivoting away from SIGs and into other things like vaping and MD and such, but it's still a big risk to be aware of. I hold about 10% of my portfolio in tobacco stocks and they generate about 20% of my dividend income, but I urge caution for others. Anyway, the point is that I see investing kind of like you're creating your own golden ticket in the future, and the more you invest, the more amazing your financial future becomes. And with that, I'll close things off by thanking you for watching, and I apologize if you submitted a question that I didn't pick. I've got a long list of questions I've been asked, so I can't guarantee I'll get to everyone's in a video, but I'll do my best. If you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing Questions and Answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM me your questions. If you do send me a question, then tell me if there's any part of your name or question that you don't want me to share. 
And now I'd normally do a shout out my latest Patreon aristocrats and kings, but I'm still all sold out. So instead I'd like to thank Seeking Alpha who sponsors me. I paid for the premium membership for years because I value their articles and associated comments so much, and these days I'd literally never buy or sell a stock without first seeing what Seeking Alpha had on it. So I recommend you sign up to them using my affiliate link in the description of this video, as using it often comes with benefits for new member signups. Whatever you do, please hit that thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. And I highly recommend that you join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has over 11,000 dividend investors on it from 80 countries around the world. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and my videos are for entertainment and inspirational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinions with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.